You're listening to CSN International, your home for the latest praise and worship music and solid Bible teaching. In just a moment, we're going to join a study from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. But first, I'd like to invite you to come out and join us in person. We're located in Twin Falls, Idaho, and have our Sunday morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and Sunday and Wednesday evening services at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Visit theriverchristianfellowship.com and click on the map for directions or to schedule a visit. We're glad you're tuned in and hope you enjoy today's verse-by-verse study recorded live during one of our Wednesday or Sunday services. Now let's join the teaching already underway. Good evening. Do you guys remember, uh, like a month and a half ago now, when probably... It was when you thought like winter was getting really bad in the middle of December, and we got that first big snowstorm uh, yeah, about halfway through December. And I thought, well, this is going to be you know our, our big winter here. We got this, this one snowstorm partway through December, and then we got like six more after that. So I was wrong in my thinking of that. But it was back on that first snowstorm we had that I thought was going to be the extent of it. And it happened on a, a Wednesday night. And we were going to have church, and uh, I'd been to work that day, but you know it was getting worse. And as night went on, the snow got worse. So uh, Mike was wondering, Pastor Mike was wondering if we should cancel church that Wednesday. And so he called me after every man and answer and asked, "Hey, do you want to cancel church?" You know, Terry comes in from Jerome, and other people driving in, and we, you know, don't want people to have to drive in that weather. And I thought, yeah, I don't want people to risk their lives to come out to church tonight, and you know, let's call it. So we decided to do that, and but I was worried. My only hesitation in that was, well, what if someone went through, you know, all the snow and ice and all the stuff that was going on that night, and comes out to the church and no one's here, and if we shut down church to not have people risk their lives, and someone risked their life to get out here and no one was there, well, I'd feel really bad about that. Mike says, "Yep, so be there." Uh, he's had a nicer than that, though. So I came out here. Uh, that Wednesday night when we canceled church, I tried to text as many people as I could, but just in case someone came out, uh, expecting there to be church. And so I got here at about 6.45, a little early, and I decided to go into the prayer room over there, because I love it in there and I don't go in there often enough. And, uh, decided to go in there and pray and, and just look at, cause they got my favorite thing, vintage, uh, Bible verse posters, like from the 70s. I don't know why I love those so much, but I do. And they, they got those all over in there. Go into the prayer room and check it out if you've never been in there. And uh, so I go in there and start praying, and, and I'm looking around, just looking at the verses on the wall and all that. And then I see uh, this basket was sitting in there that I brought out tonight uh, to look at for a little bit here. And, and I, I looked in the basket, and it's filled, you can see, with uh, these are all prayer requests. And it's multiple on each, on each page. And the basket's just filled with it. And I saw that, and I started looking in it. And my first reaction was kind of a selfish one, was I didn't know about this. I'm the assistant pastor here, and I didn't know we had this basket of prayer requests in the prayer room. And I felt awful. Uh, had these people written in and no one prayed for them? I, I checked into it, and people do pray for them. But I felt bad knowing, first thing, was that's a selfish thing, even though the people whose prayer requests are in there are hurting and suffering, my selfish reaction is I should have known about this. Uh, but I feel bad about it. I felt bad about it. And uh, I, I was looking through them and praying for them, even though some were months or years old. It, it goes way back. And uh, it's just filled with suffering, I guess, many Jobs as we're studying the book of Job and, and thinking about all the things going on. I mean, I brought it out. So just to look, I mean, look, it's filled. Here's just one page and there's, the basket's filled with that. Um, you know, this guy would like 24-hour prayer for his life, total restoration from what the adversary has stolen from me, to come back greater than I had ever been before, knowing God's Word and living it daily, to have others bless me out of my socks, to be healthy, debt-free, and have abundance in my finances, that God would open the floodgates of heaven and pour out a blessing so big no room could hold it. Thank you and God bless. Just find a couple of them here. This guy would like prayer for his life. I listen to CSN radio. My prayer is for the best for everyone at CSN. Thank you for walking in the good works that Christ has prepared for us in his glory and all that this ministry imparts. I'm incarcerated in Arkansas. Praise the Lord. He has freed me from bondage, which is spiritual. 
However, I must confess, I am most definitely under construction. Please pray for me and everyone in my unit as we're all in need. This, this one uh, wants prayer for surgery. Pray for the surgery to go well. Recovery speedy and for strength. Uh, lots of surgery ones. I mean, look, we could go on, but it, it's, it's all, and I saw this basket and that's just a couple I picked there. And there's people, their lives are getting turned upside down, don't know what to do. I need prayer. I need help. I'm hurting. I'm suffering. And, and it's all, I mean, it's all like that. And that's just one prayer request basket, let alone the world and the prayer requests that aren't in there. I mean, but that, that's the basket we have here. And, and it, like I said, my first thing is selfish. I should have known about that. I should have been praying about this. And this basket is going to be in the prayer room. Uh, you know, and you can go in there and pray for these people if you want. And they do get prayed for. It comes through CSN and that. But uh, more prayer always helps. And it's a blessing of being part of this church that these all come in from CSN uh, because so many people listen to the, the radio station just on the other side of these walls. You know, it goes out 400 plus stations. Uh, they can track the listeners over the internet. About half a million listeners on the internet every month. That's not even a fraction of people listening over the, the airwaves. And so what a blessing to be here where we're in this very building. The gospel goes out all day long, but as part of that is this, these kinds of things is this, I know the heartbreaking, the, this, the things that we hear and we see here, people writing in and calling in. And every single one of these people is suffering. That's why they, they write in. That's why they ask for prayer. They're hurting. They're suffering. They're, I didn't look through all of them, I confess, but I didn't see any that said, just pray for me because my life is going really great right now and, and I like it to keep going that way. There's none like that. It's all stuff we've read and, and more harmful than that. So like I said, it's like, it's like many Job's, every single one of those stories, just like every single one of our stories. We're, we're many Job's. And I say many, maybe not. For, for Some people have suffered like Job has suffered. I haven't. But we've all been through suffering. And we all, that's just the prayer request. There's the story that goes with it. The heartache, the turmoil, the, the struggling, the wanting answers. And I can't speak for anybody at all, but a common question looking at things like that is why? Simple question, why? Why do we suffer? Why do we have a basket filled with hundreds of prayer requests when we worship a God who's good? Right? Why, why is there suffering like this? And it's a good question. It's a tough question. And for many, it's why they say they can't worship God. They can't worship this God that we claim, you know, came to the earth to pay for our sins as a free gift to us. Yeah, that sounds great, but why the prayer basket? Why all that stuff if he's so good? There's the Greek philosopher Epicurus who put this sort of dilemma thousands of years ago, which still stumbles many people. It says this, Is God willing to prevent evil but not able? Then he's not omnipotent. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. Is he both able and willing? Then whence cometh evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? See, that, that's, that's the question. If God wants to stop evil, wants to stop suffering, but he can't, then he's not omnipotent. Why worship him? If God is able to stop evil, but he's not willing to, then he's evil. Why worship that God? If he's able to do both, then why is there evil? Why is there suffering? If he's not able or willing, then why call him God? I mean, that's, that's the question. We can, you can find all sorts of rational arguments, logical arguments to say, what are the issues with that? But, but it all boils down to this. It's, he, he asked this question, which a lot of people do, is why call him God? If there's this prayer basket, and these people love God, I'm going to say for the most part, they love God, that's why they listen to a Christian radio station and write in. Why does this God whom they love cause all this suffering in their life? Why call him God? That's the question there. Why the suffering? And it boils down to this. He's God because he's God. That, that's it. 
If he's God, we don't get to lay our hang-ups and faulty definitions on him and say, well, you must not be God because you don't fit my understanding. He's either God or he's not God. And, and this is, I'm going to say the most important point tonight I'm putting at the beginning in case you know anyone tunes out or you know whatever, falls asleep, whatever. This is the most important point. Is he God or is he not God? If he's not God, then, then this question, which people ask is like a stumbling block, why they can't put their faith in him, then why all this hurt in my life? Why all this suffering? If I would know that, then I could worship this God. If, if, so if you're at the point where uh, I'm not sure if he's God, this question isn't going to solve it. No one is logically persuaded into God's kingdom. That's not how God works. And you can go on the internet and go through the pages of rebuttals for that argument if you want. But he's either God or he's not God. If he's not God to you, then this, the answer to this question is kind of miles away from where you are. Because those in the darkness like to stain the darkness so their deeds aren't exposed. That's what Jesus says. Because coming to God is a confession. I'm a sinner and I've been a part in the evil in this world and I need a savior because I can't do it. So we like to stain darkness so we don't have to admit that. The, the answer to this question isn't going to solve anyone's problem that way. If you say he's not God. But if you say he is God, if he is God, then we can't lay that on him. Like, I don't think God should be a God who allows suffering. It doesn't matter what you think about God. He's God. Right? That, that's the most important thing. Is God God or is he not? And if he is God, then he is who he says he is. Then the problem is on our end. I mean, it works like this. I, I use my wife as an example a lot, so I'm not going to. I'm going to use Dustin. I'm going to spring that on him. Uh, it doesn't say anything bad about you. Don't worry. Uh, it, it's a... Uh, Okay, is Dustin Dustin? If he's not Dustin, yeah, good question, it's philosophical. Uh, if he's not Dustin, then this, this question's kind of irrelevant, right? We, you gotta get, you gotta know he's Dustin before this question's really gonna mean anything. If he is Dustin, then you can't just make up stuff about him and say that's how he should be. You know what, Dustin? You're a vegetarian because that's what I want you to be. Well, I've seen him eat vast amounts of meat. I know that's not true. Hey, I, I don't, just because I want to say that about him doesn't mean that that's true about him. See, that's, if God is God, then he's God. And what we think he should be is really irrelevant because he's God. He's the one who decides who he is and what he, who he is is what he says. So here's, we a lot of times look at this issue of suffering, what you're going to look at tonight. Why they're suffering. A lot of times we spend a, a lot of time defending God. Like why it's okay for there to be suffering. I'm not going to go that direction because Job doesn't really go that direction here. And it's, it's fine. You know, there, there's a good place for that. But if God is God, I don't really need to defend him. He'll speak for himself. His word will speak for himself. And he'll speak to your heart by himself. It's not a logical argument that's going to convince you of that. So we're going to look at suffering tonight in the book of Job with these two assumptions. Number one, that we all suffer. We all go through suffering. This prayer basket is not even the tip of the iceberg. It's like the tip of the tip of the iceberg. When we all go through suffering, the second assumption we have looking at this is that God is good because he said he's good. If I disagree with that, that's I have a faulty understanding of good. God is the one who sets the standard because he's God. He's either God or he's not. And if God says he's good, if God says he's loving, then he is. And the problem is on my end. So rather than defend God and say he actually is good, I'm going to take him at his word that he is and look at this with that assumption. And so in the book of Job, we'll be in chapter 32 and chapter 33. And we're at a sort of this weird part of the book. Um, Job has been suffering. Right? He's lost, all of, all of his kids have died. Uh, he's lost his household. He's lost all of his possessions. He's lost his health. His wife has told him to just give up. And it's all happened because God was proud of Job. God brought Job up to Satan and said, Have you considered my servant Job that there's nobody like him, that he's upright and blameless? And Satan accused Job and said, Of course, God, he has everything he wants. Take that away, he'll curse you to your face. So God allowed Satan to take it all away. His kids died, his house is destroyed, all that. Job does not curse God to his face. He says, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Satan again accuses him. Well, hurt him and he'll curse you. 
So God says, okay, take away his health. His health is taken away. He gets covered in boils. He describes his skin is, is even turning black and the skin peeling off. And he loses his health. And still Job does not sin or accuse God of wrongdoing. That's what it says at the beginning. And so then his friends show up to comfort him. And they fail. Uh, they don't really try to comfort him. They try to tell Job, you did something to deserve this. Hey, there's something hidden deep inside of you that you deserve this, and God is trying to show you that. That's basically what their argument was. Job doesn't buy that, which he shouldn't. And Job didn't buy, and they argue for a long time, and they don't help. And we're, the friends are done. The three original friends are done. Job is also done. We read last week his final defense. He's done talking about this. And we have this weird section here for the next few weeks of the friend uh, Elihu, who's been there the whole time, but he hasn't said anything. And now he steps forward to kind of give a, another voice of reason, he hopes, into this situation. And it's, it's a little more difficult to make sense out of him. The friends are easy because God says they're wrong, so they're wrong. God doesn't say if Elihu is wrong or not. So we have to look at that and think, well, what is he saying about God? And he starts his speech tonight trying to explain to Job. Because that's been the question, that same question we ask. Why? Why all this suffering? Job didn't know all that stuff that we know, that it was God who was bragging about him. Job didn't know any of that. And so why? Why is this happening to me? I've been a good guy. I've been trying to do the right thing. Why does this happen? So they're all trying to do that. Now Elihu comes in with his perspective to answer that. And basically what he says here, we'll see tonight, is because we don't know why we suffer, we need to grow in our relationship with God so that we can trust Him when we suffer. With these fundamental assumptions, right, that He's good because He says He is and He's God. And God gets to decide those things about Him. We don't get to look from our faulty point and make those about Him. So let's go in Job chapter 32. He, he gives sort of the first possible answer to this question which I say possible because really we don't know why. We don't have God's point of view like we do in this book. And his first possible answer is that it's a result of sin. Some sort of evil or wrong that Job has done and that's why they're suffering or just people in general because we've done evil and sin and that's why we suffer. So let's look at chapter 32. Most of it though is just kind of him building himself up, getting ready for a great speech is kind of what he does. So let's go chapter 32. Starting with verses 1 through 5. It says, So these three men, those are the original friends, ceased answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. See, that's an important point. We, we got into that last week. Job is not perfect in his suffering, which is one of the things God shows him when he shows up. And it says that Job was righteous in his own eyes. So in all of his suffering, what Job did was try to prove that he was the one who's right in his own eyes, rather than looking through his eyes to see how God is right. That was the fundamental problem. We talked about that last week as being uh, navel-gazing, where you're just looking inside of yourself, and how am I actually right about this, and how is God really wrong? And that's kind of that's what Job was doing. He wasn't at all looking at the point of view, well, what is God doing? Who is God? It was, no, I've been pretty good. No, I don't, I don't think I deserve this. So they quit answering him because he was righteous in his own eyes. Then the wrath of Elihu the son of Barakel the Buzite of the family of Ram, was aroused against Job. His wrath was aroused because he justified himself rather than God. Same problem. Also against his three friends, his wrath was aroused because they had found no answer and yet had condemned Job. So Elihu is also mad at the friends because they didn't have an answer for Job's suffering. They just said he's wrong. They just said he must have a sin. So, you know, that's the reason why. Now, because they were years older than he, Elihu had waited to speak to Job. When Elihu saw that there was no answer in the mouth of these three men, his wrath was aroused. So before he gets into his speech, it's saying Job's friends are wrong. Job's friends are wrong. And even Job is wrong in his response to suffering to some extent. And what they were wrong about, again, the, the summary of their position, they were wrong about this idea that God killed Job's children because he had a secret sin. That's what the friends were saying, and that was wrong. God says that's wrong. See, this is probably the worst answer to the why question. Why am I suffering? Well, you have a secret sin in your life. You need to look really deep into your heart and find out what's wrong with you. And then you need to repent, and then God will give you everything you want. That's probably the worst answer. It might not be the worst, but probably the worst answer. 
God has done something terrible to you because you got a secret sin you need to find out. Now, God says that's wrong, and He's God, and we agree with Him. That's not how He operates. If anyone has told you that, that's not what God does. That's very clear in the next few chapters. Now, is it possible that sin leads to suffering? Yeah, it is. It's possible. In fact, there only is suffering because there is sin. If there were no sin, there would be no suffering. But that's different than saying, exactly in your life, the reason why things are not going well, why you're hurting, is because you've got a secret sin God is trying to show you. That's not what's going on here. That's kind of the point of this book. If I was going to summarize in a nutshell, we can't say. Why? We can't say. We can't put words in God's mouth because He's God and we're not. We can't say. We can pray and see God and try to find out, but we can't say. We can't put words into His mouth and say, this is why someone is suffering. That's wrong. What we can say, though, is how much your suffering grieves God. And I can prove that. Because people have these little sayings they like to say, and they mean really well, and I'm not trying to to degrade that at all, but like if if someone dies, and people say, you know, oh, God needed another angel, and and, uh, he has a plan, you know, and this is all part of it. It sounds nice, they're meaning well, but but he does have a plan. Here's, here's, Here's where I'm going. God is grieved by your suffering, and what proves it is that he came to this earth to live in a world where he suffered. The Bible says that Jesus was a man acquainted with sorrow. And he suffered just as we did. He was tempted in every way we are, yet without sin. He died on the cross, although he deserved no part of that. He did it for us on our behalf. Right. So what proves that God cares about your suffering is that because he didn't have to do that. And we sometimes lay that up on God. Well, he had to do that because that's the only way we could be forgiven. He, yeah, it is the only way we could be forgiven, but he didn't have to forgive us. The reason why he did that, why he came to do that, is because he looked on our suffering. He looked on our sad condition. And he came. He intervened. That's what it says in Exodus when he sees his people in slavery. He saw them in their condition and he had pity and mercy on them. So I know what I can say. I can't say why you're suffering. I can say God is grieved by it so much so that he lived a perfect life and died for your sake, so that you could live with Him eternally in a perfect world. So that you could live in a world where there is no suffering. That's what we can say about Him. So now as He starts His speech, He, most of this chapter is just kind of Him building Himself up, so we'll kind of go kind of quickly on it. Uh, so let's go to verse 6 as He starts this speech. He explains why He waited so long. So Elihu, the son of Barakel the Buzai, answered and said, I am young in years and you are very old. Therefore, I was afraid and dared not declare my opinion to you. I said, age should speak and multitude of years should teach wisdom. But there is a spirit in man and the breath of the Almighty gives him understanding. Great men are not always wise, nor do the aged always understand justice. So what people have issue with with Elihu, you can say it either way, uh, is his tone about it. Like He's not very sensitive to Job. That's pretty clear. And he comes in here and says, I didn't talk because you guys are old and you know I was being respectful, but you guys don't know what you're talking about, so now I'm going to step in. And the, the point is, they were wrong. They didn't have wisdom. And he says it's the breath of the Almighty that gives men understanding, not age. And these guys were old and powerful and experienced, and they, with all their heads combined, couldn't figure out what was going on with Job. So just making that point, just because you guys are old doesn't mean you know what you're talking about. I'm not saying they don't have wisdom, but in this case, they did not. And then verse 10. Therefore I say, listen to me. I also will declare my opinion. Indeed, I waited for your words. I listened to your reasonings while you searched out what to say. I paid close attention to you. And surely not one of you convinced Job or answered his words. Lest you say we have found wisdom, God will vanquish him, not man. Now he has not directed his words against me, so I will not answer him with your words. He's just saying, I'm going to go this a different way because Job didn't buy your answers and he shouldn't have. 
Job knew it's not some secret sin in his life that God is punishing him for. That was their answer. He didn't buy that, so I'm going to take a different approach. That's what he's saying. They are dismayed and answer no more. Words escape them. And I have waited because they did not speak, because they stood still and answered no more. I also will answer my part. I too will declare my opinion, for I am full of words. The spirit within me compels me. Indeed, my belly is like wine that has no vent. It is ready to burst like new wineskins. I will speak that I may find relief. I must open my lips and answer. Let me not, I pray, show partiality to anyone, nor let me flatter any man. For I do not know how to flatter, else my maker would soon take me away. He's pretty much saying, hey guys, i got a great answer coming up. You better listen to me. I've been holding it up for a long time. Uh, so he, he's getting ready to give us this great answer of why Job is suffering. There's been kind of this point here, well, sin, he, he said, friends in this case, uh, not so much, although it could be part of it. So in chapter 33 now, he gives his, basically, he builds himself up a little more. He he kind of feels very important about himself. and uh, But he basically gets to this second possible answer here to why they're suffering, is that he causes suffering to discipline us. So, chapter 33. But please, Job, hear my speech and listen to all my words. Now I open my mouth. My tongue speaks in my mouth. My words come from my upright heart. My lips utter pure knowledge. The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. If you can answer me, set your words in order before me. Take your stand. Truly I am as your spokesman before God. I also have been formed out of clay. Surely no fear of me will terrify you, nor will my hand be heavy on you. He's still, okay, he hasn't got to his point yet. He's taking a long time to get there. But he says, Job, you know, I'll be your lawyer. I'll, I'll, you know, get, present your case to God, but first prove to me how you're right. I mean, he's just kind of building this up. There's, he, it's basically what he, it's still a th- debate about theology. Right? And that's what the friends did. They were supposed to come there to help. Instead, they spend about 30 chapters arguing about God and how theology works and all that. And Elihu is still kind of in that mindset. Okay, so now he finally gets into what his point is. Verse 8. Surely you have spoken in my hearing, and I have heard the sound of your words saying, I am pure without transgression. I am innocent and there is no iniquity in me. Yet he finds occasions against me. He counts me as his enemy. He puts my feet in the stocks. He watches all my paths. So Elihu, in trying to tell Job why he's suffering, what he says here, it sounds, sounds good. Well, you know, Job, kind of here's what your, your point has been, that you're pure without transgression, you're innocent, there's no sin. Here's the problem, though, is Job never said that. Elihu is misrepresenting Job to make his point. If you remember the beginning of the book, Job sacrificed to make sure his sins were paid for. God said that Job was upright and blameless. And someone who's sacrificing because they've sinned, I don't think that's someone who claims, I am pure without transgression. I mean, I know a point in my life when I would have claimed that. Not really. I knew I was a sinner, right? But before I knew God, I, it was like, well, I'm not really that bad. So, I mean, what's there really to care about? Uh, you know, if God would, if I, if there is a God and I stood before him, He'd probably just accept me because I've been pretty good, which I hadn't been, but you know how it is. And uh, if you're making a sacrifice for your sin, I don't think you're making the claim that I'm without sin. So Elihu is misrepresenting what Job says. Job never said he's without sin. What he said is, I don't have a secret sin that God is punishing me for. Okay, there, there's a difference there. And, and he misrepresents his point, Job's point, to make a theological point, which is, is not good. I mean... So like if the Bible teaches that God created the world and, you know, the other side of that is, you know, evolution and all that stuff. Well, if what's true is true, then you don't need to twist their words to make it sound like I'm more true. Like no one who who believes in evolution thinks that dogs came from cats. That's not what they think. And so that's misrepresenting their side to make a point. When I'm arguing with someone, like if I'm arguing with my wife and I misrepresent her, to sound more right, which I've never done, right? Uh, what God says, or Jesus says, who's God, your word is truth. And that's an interesting statement. He doesn't say your word is true, like it conforms to some other standard of truth. He says your word itself is truth, which means God loves truth, which means we, 
shouldn't be people who misrepresent people to make our own little point about things. Like give them credit for, the, for their side. What Elihu does, again, he's not as wrong as the friends, but so the conclusions he draws here, I wouldn't say are wrong, but he's misrepresenting Job to make his point. And here's his point. He's finally kind of there. Verse 11. Verse 12. Look, in this you are not righteous. I will answer you, for God is greater than man. Why do you contend with him? For he does not give an accounting of any of his words. He starts off really good here. This is what really the friends never did, or Job. It's kind of this thing that I've been saying. God is God. If God is God, then he is who he says he is, and we don't get to put anything on him. And he says, this is where you're wrong, Job. God is greater than man. Why do you contend with him? He doesn't give an accounting of any of his words. And like I said, God does not owe us anything. He gave us perfection. He gave us a world without sin. Yet we chose to think he's not good and sin against him. He doesn't owe us anything. Now he gives us out of his mercy. I mean, one of the most amazing sentences in the Bible is, since we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, we are justified by his grace as a gift, which we receive by faith. In that same sentence, the very reason why we're justified is because of God's grace, because we sinned. But he doesn't owe us that. It's his grace. It's his love he has towards us, which we did not deserve. So God does not owe Job an explanation because he's God. So that's where he starts. Verse 14. For God may speak in one way or in another, yet man does not perceive it. In a dream, in a vision of the night, when deep sleep falls upon men, while slumbering on their beds, then he opens the ears of men and seals their instruction in order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. And so he says to Job, look, God has a lot of ways of talking to people. He'll reach you if he needs to. In this case, he says, it might be a dream. God may speak in one way or another, yet man does not perceive it. In a dream and a vision of the night. But God is, is trying to speak to us for the purpose of verse 17, in order to turn man from his deed and conceal pride from man. He keeps back his soul from the pit and his life from perishing by the sword. See, this is, God finds a way to speak to people, to turn their life from the pit. And, and I know this, we all know this as Christians. I don't, I've never heard a testimony that said, you know what, my life was going exactly how I wanted it to go and everything was great. And then I discovered who God is and, and I worship Him. I've never heard that. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I've never heard it. But I know in, in my life, what He used to speak to me, because I wasn't reading the Bible. I was listening to Christian radio to make fun of it. He used that to speak to me also. Uh, but it was my life falling apart. It was my wife wanting to leave me and me seeing me for the jerk I really am and seeing uh, I don't have my life figured out. I don't know what I'm doing. Maybe someone out there does. Yeah, God who has an eternal perspective and he's omnipotent and omnipresent. I mean, that's, that's what he does. Now, can we say that, make that claim all the time? No, we can't. And, and that's one of the things here in the book is we can't put words into God's mouth. But does he do this? Yes, he certainly does. It might be a dream. He'll find a way to speak to someone. But what he says here is, yet man does not perceive it. It's very possible for you not to, to perceive it, to hear without perceiving, to hear without understanding. Jesus talked about that. See, it's possible if you're not a Christian and listening to Christian radio, and that's probably how you're hearing my voice right now, is God trying to speak to you? Yeah, He is. Why else would you be listening? But it's possible to not perceive it. So then he, he develops this point a little more. Verse 19, Man is also chastened with pain on his bed, and with strong pain in many of his bones so that his life abhors bread and his soul succulent food. His flesh wastes away from sight, and his bones stick out, which once were not seen. Yes, his soul draws near to the pit and his life to the executioners. Same idea. May, sometimes it could be sickness. It's losing your health, losing everything you have. That causes you to see where my life is heading. And God speaks to people in that way. How many people, as they're, they've face-to-face with their mortality, I'm probably going to die pretty soon. It, God speaks to people that way. Does he always do that? No. Is that the reason if you're suffering from from physical sickness or emotional? Is, is Did he do that? Did he kill someone you love just to get your attention? I'm not going to say that. But he can use that to speak to you. 
Verse 23. If there is a messenger for him, a mediator, one among a thousand, to show man his uprightness, then he is gracious to him and says, Deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. His flesh shall be young like a child's. He shall return to the days of his youth. He shall pray to God and he will delight in him. He shall see his face with joy, for he restores to man his righteousness. Then he looks at men and says, I have sinned and perverted what was right, and it did not profit me. He will redeem his soul from going down to the pit, and his life shall see the light. See, sometimes it's this suffering. Wait, let, let's, let me get to the wrong understanding of this first. He's not saying that, that your suffering is a ransom. He brings up this idea of ransom. Don't, don't get the idea that, okay, you've suffered enough, and now you're gonna, like, everything's gonna be fine. God's gonna say, okay, your suffering is done. Because no matter how much we suffer, it's not good enough to pay for our sin, which we've done against a holy, almighty God. The ransom is not our suffering. And sometimes we can be that way. That, well, I've suffered enough in this lifetime, surely God isn't gonna make me suffer in the next. Your suffering is not a ransom. What he says, then he is gracious to him and says, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. The ransom is Jesus. If the ransom, that's the only thing. What that means, a ransom is the price you pay to buy someone out of slavery. The Bible says we are a slave to sin. We know that because we can't stop it. Sin is our master. If I really want to stop sinning, I can try really hard, but I'm not going to stop completely because we're a slave to sin. And Jesus perfect life in our place and his death to pay on the cross for those sins that's the ransom that's the price that it takes to buy your life from slavery to sin and make you a son or daughter of god an heir to his kingdom see on the cross jesus did so much to be our ransom he was our sacrifice he died in our place we deserve death because the wages of sin is death our payment for sin is dying but our our payment is not good enough to take away God's wrath. So Jesus, secondly, is our propitiation, the Bible calls it. It's the sacrifice that takes God's wrath away. All of God's wrath you deserved was poured out on Jesus. That's why he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The wrath you deserved is being poured out on him. On the cross, Jesus is our reconciliation. He restores our relationship with God. And when you need to reconcile with somebody, it's on the terms of the one you've hurt. It's not on my terms. If I've hurt my wife and I want to reconcile, it's up to her to decide how we do that, not me. I've hurt God. It's up to him to decide how we reconcile. It's not me saying, oh, I've paid my own ransom. I've been pretty good. It's Jesus is fully man and fully God. And he's a mediator for me between God and me. And Jesus on the cross is our ransom. It's his blood that purchased us from slavery of sin to bring us into his kingdom. That's what the Bible says. And this ransom, yeah, God speaks to people. Sometimes it's through suffering. Oftentimes, I would say, it's through suffering. And we know from Job how he responds when God shows up. And God doesn't answer any of these questions. God just says, where were you, Job, when I was forming the earth? To get him to understand, you don't know. You're not God. I'm God. And I'm good, and trust me. And he speaks to people in their suffering. Is that why you're suffering? I don't know. Can God use that to speak to you? Yeah, he can. And I think most people would agree, after the suffering, we look back and say, Man, I felt closer to God then than I have in a long time. That's, I think, what Job would say, because at the end he says, what I heard with my ears, now I see with my eyes. I repent in sackcloth and ashes. Let's finish the chapter. It says, Behold, God works all these things, twice in fact, three times with a man, to bring back his soul from the pit, that he may be enlightened with the light of life. He's saying, look how far God will go to save your soul from the pit. He'll go so far to leave heaven and come to the earth, as we've already talked about, to pay for that, because there's no other way. That's how far he would go. Think of how little we go for God. And he went all that way to come out and meet us. Jesus says if there's 99 sheep that are there and there's one who's missing, the good shepherd goes out to find that one sheep who's missing. He doesn't say the sheep will find its way back eventually if he you know, smartens up. The shepherd goes out to find the sheep. 
It says God will do all of this to bring back his soul from the pit. That is how far he'll go. And I know as a parent, hey, what is hardest, and we talk about this all the time, is this idea of disciplining our kids. Man, it would be so easy if, if I didn't care about our kids and could just let them do whatever they wanted. Like when we're trying to get our daughter to stay in her room at nap time instead of come out every five minutes and ask if she can get up. And we want to show her there's limits and what we say is what we mean. So we have to, you know, yell at her and spank her and stuff. And to teach her limits are limits and rules you should listen to. And in all those lessons, it would be so much easier to say, yeah, just come out of your room and play on the iPad for a while. Okay, that's, that's the easy thing to do. But it's discipline that shows how much you love someone. That's what God says. He'll do all this to bring back your soul from the pit. Give ear, Job. Listen to me. Hold your peace and I will speak. If you have anything to say, answer me. Speak for I desire to justify you. If not, listen to me. Hold your peace and I will teach you wisdom. So I'm going to close tonight if I, I never like doing this of like, well, here's a, a list of things. Here's some things you could do. I prayed about this a lot and I've said some possible things, but what's certain? If we can't say for sure, why do we suffer? It could be God is trying to show you something. It could be God is trying to speak to you. It could be all sorts of things. I don't know. That would be you to find out. But what are some definite things, some things that can be a rock for us? when we're suffering, that we know for sure. And let's focus on these things rather than that why question because I don't know if that's going to bring us a lot of comfort. First thing, remember your enemies. Your enemies are sin. And sin is inside of you. It's the part of you that just wants to live for yourself and do whatever you want because I'm most important. That's your greatest enemy. Satan is your enemy. Don't forget the demonic aspect of this whole book, that it was Satan accusing Job of something he didn't do. And that language of accusation, you're not good enough, you didn't do this, you need to do this next time. That's satanic, that's demonic. You've got to know his tactics because he's your enemy. It, the Bible says there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So that voice is not from God. That's demonic. That's what Satan says, he's the accuser. And his best technique because it's what brought sin to the world in the first place, is what we're talking about at the beginning. Is God good? No, God's not really that good. Look at what he's doing to you. God isn't really that good. He doesn't want you to have that. That's what he said to Eve. And Eve bought it. And that's why we have suffering today. It's because of Adam and Eve's sin and our sin. So you've got to know those. Those are your enemies. God is not your enemy. Other people are not necessarily your enemy. Your greatest enemy is inside of you. That's sin. But he who's in you is greater than he who's in the world. Second thing, remember where you're headed. See, this is definite. This is a rock. In Colossians 3, it says, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. For you died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, appears... Then you also will appear with him in glory. Just remember where you're headed. Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. If it weren't so, I wouldn't have told you. He's assuring us there's a place for you in God's kingdom. And set your mind there. That's where your life is. It says your life is hidden there with Christ and God who's seated at the right hand of God. See, he's prepared a place for you and that's your home. Your home is not here. Faith is getting home. That's the walk we take, even through suffering. Now, how are you suffering? If your life is hidden with Christ and God, I can tell you it will be gone. If your life is hidden with Christ and God, that's the key part. Your suffering will be gone one day. If you're suffering from depression, you might suffer that your whole life. On this life, I can't say. What I can say is what God says, that he'll wipe away every tear from your eyes when you see him face to face. Are you suffering from your health? You might suffer your whole life from your health. But what the Bible says is that when he returns, when Jesus, who is your life, appears, you'll receive a body that's not subject to sickness and death and suffering. Are you suffering in your relationships with other people? And that's a result of sin. 
And when we see Jesus, who is our life, we'll be perfectly fulfilled in being with Him. And, and a lot of our suffering is because we put onto other people what we need from God. And we expect other people to give us what only God can give us. Are you, is your suffering from death? Someone you love has died? What the Bible says is, O oh death, where is your sting? It is swallowed up in victory. Because Jesus defeated death, and in Him we defeat death, and everyone who is in Him. So he says in Romans, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. A third bedrock is remember the crucifixion and the resurrection. That's what everything is about. That proves everything. If God says He's good and we're doubting it, if we think, meditate on that, fix our eyes on what Jesus did for us on the cross, there's no reason to question that. It says in Romans as well, He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? If God died for you just so that you could have a place where there is no suffering, you can't really call Him not good. It's just we don't understand. And the last thing is to remember who God is. That's the point at the beginning. Remember who God is. Either He's God or He's not. If He's not, there's, there's some other things you're going to need to come to before this question is really going to mean anything to you. But if He is God, remember who He is. That's the important thing. So that's what God does when He shows up to Job. He doesn't answer why ever. He answers who. This is who I am. Which means we need to get to know God really well. We really need to know Him on a personal level. We can't be God's Facebook friend where we know some facts about Him and we like verses about Him and just say, that's kind of it. And then do whatever I want the rest of the time. That's, that's not going to get you through suffering to, to not know God deeply, which means we need to read the Bible, we need to pray. If you want to know anyone, you need to talk to them and you need to listen to them. We talk to God by praying, we listen by reading the Bible. See, when suffering comes, which it will, or is already here, you're not going to have the faith to get home if you barely know who God is. We need to know Him well. See, if I have trouble trusting my wife, see, I always use her as an example, if I have trouble trusting her, how do I get to trust her more? It's I know more about her. I, think, I, don't, I don't need to not trust her in that way. I know who she is. How do I get to know her? Is, I get to know her. It, it's not that hard. That's what we need to do with God. And we get to know Him on His terms, which is through His Word. And that's something we need to be serious about. And, and I think this might be one of the biggest failure in churches today is this, this idea that we can just kind of check in with God and then do what we want all the time. No, we need to get to know Him on a deep level. We do not have the faith to get through the suffering and trust Him through it. You need to know Him so you don't doubt His goodness. See, if you don't know Him for who He is, and rather lay up your own hang-ups on Him, but if you don't know Him for who He is, you're going to take for granted Jesus' death and resurrection. That uh, didn't really mean all that much to me. You're going to stop walking home to your eternal place, and you're going to allow your enemies to get between you and God. We're not going to know why all the prayers in that basket, all the suffering, all the prayers that would be in our basket, all the suffering, each one of us, we're probably not going to know why exactly. But what we can know is who God is. See, the why question is for the most part unfruitful. Because imagine if God would have said, Job, you're about to lose everything. But just push through it a little bit because then you're going to really learn something. He wouldn't have, it wouldn't have meant the same to him. See, if God told us exactly why I'm suffering, we might want to know that, but it's, it's unfruitful. Because then we don't have to trust Him. We're not walking by faith, we're walking by sight. And he, he generally doesn't tell us, but what we can know is in here, in His Word. That's what we can be sure about. So if you're not a Christian, God is doing everything He can do to save you. It says twice, three times. He'll, he came to seek you out. He came to this earth to have a relationship with you. He speaks to you in lots of ways. And you know, I knew this as an atheist. I could feel Him tugging at me through my life. But I didn't perceive it. Right? Not until it was through the suffering that He showed me my failures and that I needed Him. If you're a Christian, God is waiting for the day when you get to see Jesus face to face and He wipes every tear out of your eye. 
It says there's no more suffering, no more sorrow, no more crying, no more pain, because He is good. Keep growing in your relationship with Him so that you can trust Him more and more. Because your life is hidden with Christ in God. Let's pray. Oh, Father, first, I pray for everyone who's suffering, God, which is probably most people or it's going to be everyone at some point, Lord. We're going to want to know why, but help us to not be upset with not getting that answer, Lord. Help us to be satisfied with who instead of why, with who you are, what your death and sacrifice and resurrection means for us and how much you love us. Help us to focus on what's certain about you rather than throw accusations at you that that you never said were certain. God, I pray that you would speak to us even in our suffering. I pray if there's anyone listening who doesn't know you and is wondering why, why, Speak to them now, God. Show them not why, but who you are and how much you love them. And for those of us who already know you, help us to know you more. Help us to place our faith fully in you, knowing that you're God because you're God. It's a fact. And that if you're God, we worship you for who you are, not who we think you are. So help us to learn that and grow in that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a live teaching from the River Christian Fellowship, the home of CSN. If you'd like to hear today's teaching again, you can catch the free podcast by searching the iTunes store for the River Christian Fellowship or call us at 800-357-4226. Don't forget to catch next week's morning service at 10 a.m. Mountain Time and tune in next week for more from the River Christian Fellowship. 